Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word and for the truth that is found in your word. God, nobody has come this morning to listen to the foolish ramblings of a preacher. They are here and present this morning that we all together might hear from your holy word. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that in these moments to come, you would speak to us, that you would use your word, that you would use a simple-minded preacher to communicate the truth that we need to hear. Father, would you encourage those of us who are discouraged? Would you comfort those of us who are grieving? Would you motivate those of us who have become apathetic and indifferent? Lord, would your word go forth that it might not return void, that we might all leave this place changed in some way or another based off of the reading, the teaching, the proclamation of your holy word as it has already been sung. We ask that you move now in its preaching. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 1. We will begin in verse 18. I would ask if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. We look together now, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The word of the Lord says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We have been walking through a sermon series focusing on Advent. We began, Philip kicked us off by talking about from Colossians how Jesus is mighty God. We looked at how Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who himself is our peace and the one who gives us peace. We also looked last week at how Jesus is the light of the world and he has called us to shine the light of the gospel in the way that we live, in the words that we say, in the things that we do. He is the light of the world, and we are the light of the world as he is alive in us. This week we focus on one simple title, one simple name, the word Emmanuel. Now, there's probably not anything new or groundbreaking that I'm going to Trudge up this morning from the depths of Scripture. I'm not going to teach you something that you didn't already know, but 
I believe with all my heart this morning God has a very special reminder for us embedded in this simple title, Emmanuel. There are many names that Jesus has. This is a title that Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies to Jesus. It is the twofold mission of Jesus. Jesus comes to be with us. His name, Jesus, means God saves. Emmanuel means God is with us. You cannot have one without the other. Both are essential and both are integral to who Jesus is. Matthew says this is the person that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. I just want us to look for a brief moment at the, the structure of Emmanuel, what it means. So I've got it broken down for you in a, in a slide that will be up on the screen. And it is Emmanuel in Hebrew. That's If you ever run across Emmanuel spelled with an I, that's tying back to the original language that Emmanuel is from. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word. And then every now and again we see Emmanuel in Greek and it's spelled with an E. Emmanuel is not a Greek word. When they translated Emmanuel into Greek, all they did was use the Greek alphabet to try to duplicate the same sounds as Emmanuel. And so that's where Emmanuel in Greek comes from. It's not a Hebrew word. It's just a transliteration. They just use the letters to spell it out. That's all Emmanuel is in English. It has no significance as an English word. It's English letters. I-M-M-A-N-U-E-L attempting to duplicate the sounds of that Hebrew word, which is Emmanuel. I mean, they go from right to left. So you, you start over here and go that way on the Hebrew part. So the reason that when Matthew writes, they shall call his name Emmanuel, and then you have the little parentheses, the little aside at the end of verse 23 that says, which means God with us. The only reason that Matthew adds that extra little note is because when he writes Emmanuel, he just writes out the sounds Emmanuel in Greek letters, then describes in Greek to the folks who would be reading his letter, his original audience, what that word means. It means God with us. And, you know, I used to think that it was some big, fancy word, that it was like anti-disestablishmentarianism. You know, just one of these words that is a huge word that it takes like a couple sentences to describe what it means. Emmanuel. Oh, that's that's a big, fancy word that means God with us. But But I want you to look. It is probably one of the most simple words in Hebrew. This is like the first Hebrew word that I learned in seminary. Go to the next slide for me, Chris. Emmanuel. Im is just with. That's all it means. Im, with, manu, us. That's all it is. El, God. With us, God. It's not some big, sophisticated word. They took three words in Hebrew, slammed them together, and those three words translate perfectly to English. With us, God. And folks, if that doesn't give us hope, I just don't know what will. In spite of everything that we have done, in spite of everything that we will do, God chose to be with us. I don't know if you've ever been through something in your life where someone betrayed you, where someone stabbed you in the back, or where someone treated you absolutely horrendously. One of the situations I can think of is, is around death. I don't know what it is, but death 
usually has one of two polarizing effects on families. It either draws them closer together than they've ever been, or it divides them worse than they have ever been divided. There are sections of my extended family that have nothing to do with one another anymore because somebody farther on back in the generations, died, and it was mishandled how the inheritance was divvied up, and now we have nothing to do with them. We cannot stand to be in the room with them. There's one side of the family that has their own Christmas get-together and another side of the family that has a completely separate Christmas get-together, and there is no communication. You pass them in the grocery store, and you hi-hat them and look away as though there's something remarkably interesting on the ceiling the moment that they pass by. The last thing on earth that that portion of our family wants to do is be with us. The last thing that our portion of the family wants to do is be with them. How often do you break up? You have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or you go through a divorce. How many divorced parents can be in the same room together and keep it together for their children? Is that is that the norm? Is that how it usually goes? When everybody goes, oh boy, these parents are divorced and here they are sitting next to each other. This is going to just be a lovely evening. That's, that's usually, usually not how it goes, right? Because there's treachery. There's betrayal. There's broken trust. There's a severing of relationship. And every so often, maybe a divorced Husband and wife can reconcile to the point to stand to be in the room together, but that's by far the exception and not necessarily the rule. In our lives, in our experience, when someone mistreats us, our normal, natural response is, I'm done with you. The last thing we want to do is be with them. The last thing we want them to do is be with us. And in the face of our absolute, complete, and total rebellion from God, God made life so perfect. He made paradise. He made it so easy. And there was just one simple rule. Trust that He is God. Trust that He knows what He's saying. And don't eat from that one tree. But Adam and Eve said, as perfect as this is, as incredible as this is, we're not content trusting you as God. We want to have the same knowledge that you have. So they took from the fruit and they ate. And every single human being from that moment until now has done the exact same thing. All throughout our lives, we look at God realistically, metaphorically, in one way or another, and we say, God, I can handle this without you. I am smart enough to be God on my own. I don't need to follow your rules and your regulations. I don't need to trust your wisdom. I've got this. I can do it on my own. And we reject God in his perfection, in his goodness. That's why the world's as messed up as it is. If you ever watch the news and people are being murdered and people are being raped and people are being molested and people are being taken advantage of and there's financial crisis and there's war and there's all of these tragedies, do you know why? It's because of us. It's because we picked this. It's because of our nature. If you want to know why there's strife in families and after somebody dies, they can't be around each other, why there's divorce, why these families are torn apart, why people can't get along, it's us. 
It's our sin. God gave us free will and gave us the opportunity to trust him. And every person in all of human history has chosen, nah, I got this. And as soon as we choose that, we begin to mess it up. We mess it up royally all the time. And, you know, some of us, we have in our minds that we're not really that big of sinners. We don't really do that much wrong. But listen, if our brains, if our inner thoughts were projected on these screens on a Sunday, we'd never be able to show our face again. None of us are righteous. None of us do anything that makes God want to love us. As much as we love our children, right? If a child has a messy diaper and you didn't get to it in time, and they take that messy diaper and they reach down in it. I know, I know, I'm sorry, but bear with me. And they take and they make a mess, and it's all over their walls, it's all over their bed, it's all over their hands, it's all over them. It is absolutely disgusting. You walk into this situation and you almost vomit as soon as you walk in. In that moment, are you thinking, I just want to be with my child. I just want to hold them, bring them up here to me and let me snuggle them No, if you are that person, something is wrong with you. I don't know why you feel that in those moments. There are moments when your children are more precious than they've ever been and you just want to hold them and snuggle them and it's just the sweetest thing. When they've made a mess like that, that's not the feeling. But I'm making an example that graphic. I use an illustration that intense because that's what our sin is. The Bible describes it as the best that we have. Our best, our most righteous moments are still filthy rags. And and I'm sorry, I can't get around the fact that that is an idiom that they would have used for the rags that they wiped themselves with. It's not just to be grotesque. That's how the Bible describes it. So the very best that we have to offer is like a toddler who's made a mess and now they're sitting in it and smearing it on the walls. And in that moment, God said... I'm going to call your mother. <laughs> She's going to deal with this. No. Hey, I'm, let me go get the babysitter. Babysitter can deal with this. Not a chance. God rolled up his sleeves and said, all right, it ain't pretty. Nah, I'm going to be with them. I'm going to choose to be with them. I'm going to choose to meet them in the midst of their mess, in the midst of their deepest need. I will be with them. And so that's why Emmanuel is good news. That is the title of who Jesus is. It is the embodiment of God said, I will be with you. And I'm not just going to be with you in some spiritual metaphysical sense. I'm going to become flesh and blood and I'm going to walk among you and I'm going to be with you. That's Emmanuel with us. God. But it's not just that he's with us. It would be cool for the Lord to just show up. And be with us in flesh and blood. That's a great title, but it doesn't stop with him just being with us. You know, in Greek mythology, they said that Zeus used to take on the form of a human and walk around and experience regular, normal human things and then just poof, zap back up to Mount Olympus or whatever. That's not what God does. He doesn't just randomly show up to be with us and then go back to heaven and like, whoop, that's it. It was fun to just hang out. His title is God with us. His name is Jesus. And we say Jesus, but Jesus has been through a lot of languages and a lot of mutations over the years. Chris, go to the next slide for me and let's let's look. We say Jesus because the Latin translation was Isus. 
There really wasn't much of a J sound in Latin, Greek, Aramaic, or Hebrew. It's, it's more of a yuh sound. And then the German people started translating, and their J sounds like a yuh, so they put a J. But our J sounds like a juh, all right? So we say Jesus. There's nothing wrong with saying Jesus. I'm not, I'm not telling you don't call out to Jesus anymore. I just want you to know where his name comes from. I want you to know what his name means. I want you to understand his name is his mission. It was Jesus, it was Jesus, in Greek it was Jesus, in Aramaic it was Yeshua, in Hebrew it was Yahashua. It's the same name as Joshua. The interesting part is no matter which one of these names that you say or any other permutation, you could say Jesus, like Hispanic folks do. You, you could say in any permutation you want, here's what Jesus means. Go to the next slide for me. All of those mean Yahweh, God, the one true living God. God saves, God rescues, God delivers. It's not just that Jesus showed up to be with us and walk around and leave. He showed up to save us, to rescue us, to deliver us. God is with us and God delivers us. That's why Matthew says, as he's reporting what the angel said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is where Matthew gives us another aside. Just in case you were confused about what Iesus means, let's describe it. Let's break it down. It means he will save his people from their sins. You see, the name Joshua, the name Yahashua, the name Yeshua was given to sons as a symbol of hope for the Lord's anticipated sending of salvation through a Messiah to purify his people and save them from oppression. You see, the angel says he will save his people from their sins, not from oppression. The messianic hope in all of Judaism, in all of Israel's history, is that God would send a Messiah who would be a king who would save them from being oppressed by other nations. But this angel tells Joseph in his dream specifically, it's not about getting you out from under oppression. That's a problem, but it's not your biggest issue. The problem is you're separated from God Almighty by your sins and you need salvation from your sins. So God says he'll be Emmanuel. He'll be God with you, fully God, fully man. And he's come to rescue you. He's come to deliver you. And all the people would have said, woohoo, that's great. Now we don't have to deal with the Romans anymore. And and Jesus said, no, 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 you're missing it. There's something that's beyond this moment in time. There's something that is a need for all of humanity, and it is the issue we have with sin. And so we're not saved from our oppression. We're saved from our sins. And boy, that can be frustrating. It can be hard and it can be tiring. It can be wearisome when the oppression remains, even though our sins are forgiven. What what do you mean by oppression, Pastor? I mean, we live in the USA. We're We're the country of freedom, right? Land of the free, home of the brave, liberty. Woo! God bless America. How can how can we be oppressed? Well, maybe it doesn't come in the same form as political oppression. But if you want to look at me and tell me that being diagnosed with cancer is not an oppression of this world, 
I think you and I might disagree. If you want to look at me and tell me that the sin of our lives that causes death, that causes all of the volcanoes and the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the terrible, awful things that happen in this world, the murders, all the death that happens, the abortions, the rapes, everything ties back to our sin. Everything ties back to how this world is cursed and we are still oppressed because of the consequences of our sins. This is oppression as a result of our sin. Jesus comes to save us from our sins, but the oppression of this world remains. Families still fight. Couples still get divorced. We are still oppressed. But even though we're oppressed, God hasn't left. Even though Jesus' mission is complete to save us from our sins, one day he'll return to bring us into his presence forever. In the meantime, Emmanuel is still true. He is still with us. And I just, I just want to look at a few verses very quickly to remind us how God is always with us. The one that always comes to mind first is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. And I just want to encourage you, jot these down. If you don't want to turn to them right now, that's fine. But write them down. And on the days when the diseases have overwhelmed you, when the evils of this world, when the oppression of this life has got you in the dumps, go to these verses and remember that God is with you. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We don't have to be in love and greedy about money. We we can be content because he has not left us. Because he has not forsaken us. That is a quote from Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1.5. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8 says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not Fear or be dismayed. God is with us. Emmanuel. Joshua 1.5 No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This is the promise that the author of Hebrews grabs that God is making to Joshua. And the author of Hebrews applies it to every one of us. Because that's what Jesus gave us. God with us. First Chronicles 28, 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen. The author of this psalm says, I have not seen in all of my days, young and old alike, that the righteous have been forsaken. It hasn't happened in his lifetime or his children, God's children, begging for bread. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. We are oppressed. We are afflicted in every way. We are crushed. We are perplexed. We are but not driven to despair. We are 
persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Folks, I, I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know what the holidays have brought for you. I don't know what difficulty, what highest mountaintop, what lowest valley you're walking through right now. But I promise you, Emmanuel, God is with us. He has not left. He has not forsaken. And so many times we think, well, how come I can't feel God near me? And that's because we're doing this. Our heads are down. Our eyes are looking at the ground. And we're just kind of downcast. All the while, God's behind us going, hey, look over here. I'm right here with you. Hello. We're going, I just don't know where God is. I can't find him nowhere. And God's like, haven't gone anywhere right behind you. Turn around. Folks, it's our choice to recognize whether God is with us or not. You can stick your head in the sand like an ostrich and ignore the fact that God is the one holding you and sustaining you through all the ups, through all the downs, and through everything in between. Or you can pick your head up out of the sand and recognize, just like that poem that seems so cliche now, the reason there was only one set of footprints is because he was carrying us the entire time. The last one I want to leave you with, Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Matthew starts the gospel by promising Emmanuel. God is with us. Jesus ends and goes up to be in heaven. These are the closing words of the gospel of Matthew. The opening words tell us Emmanuel. The closing words, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The gospel of Matthew starts the same way that it ends. God is with us. This morning, if you've never recognized that God is with you, would you trust in him today? Or maybe you've been walking with him for years and you figured out a great way to ignore him and to stick your head in the sand. Lift your head, Christian. Know that God is with you. He loves you. He sent his son to rescue, to save, to deliver. Trust in God. He is with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the truth that is found within it. We ask, Lord, that in these moments of response and invitation that you would be with us, that your spirit would move among us, that we might respond in obedience. We love you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.